Hello again. Welcome back to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You join us in a rather unusual situation because we're just in the middle of a short bonus season. This is based on a series of videos that I produced a few years back to help in the uh, equipping of some evangelists and pastors uh, in an underdeveloped country, Christian-wise. I'm just making this available to give me a little bit of time, a couple of weeks preparation time, so that we're ready to launch off together in a major series through the book of Luke. So the sound quality on these will be... The title of this short bonus season is A Guide to Preaching. So if you feel you've been called by God to either preach or teach from the Word of God, whether it be in the context of evangelism, church, or even a small group, I do hope you'll find it helpful in approaching the Bible from an expository point of view, preaching directly out of the Word of God rather than thematically. That's the purpose of this series, and I hope you find it helpful. So with that said, I'll say bye for now, and I'll drop back into our next episode, which is session eight of A Guide to Preaching. And this time we're going to think about how do we create sermons or messages that move people to action. Bye for now. As everybody knows that flight is not complete, or for that matter even successful, unless the plane lands safely. Indeed, unless the plane lands, little else matters. And a speech or a sermon is a bit like an airplane flight. The takeoff is the introduction and the flight is the body of the speech, but that does not guarantee a safe landing. A conclusion and an application by the listeners is what really is needed to ensure that the message lands, not only in the heart, but in the minds and in the feet of the people receiving it. While there may be some benefits intellectually to a message with just a summary conclusion, needless to say, the message, even if it's good, becomes all the more powerful and effective if it reaches a point where it is concluded and the people hearing it feel called to make a decision or to take an action. So we're considering today the use of a conclusion as a way of concluding a message in a way that helps people get their feet moving as it were. The conclusion of a message is different to an ending because it's not merely trying to reach a point where you stop. It should produce a feeling of finality, yes, but with a sense also of now, what is it I should do? Often the conclusion will be the emotional high point of the message. It will in a sense be like the movies would describe it as a call to adventure. So first of all, we need to think about how we can focus the message in how we bring about its ending. One of the major purposes of a conclusion of any message is to bring the meaning and the application of that message into sharp focus. Hopefully by the time you as a speaker arrive at the conclusion, the audience or the congregation will have got the message. But as experienced speakers know, no matter how attentive an audience or a congregation may seem to be, in general, there will be some people who are slower than others to get the message, and some, maybe many, will not get it at all. The whole thing will just go over their heads. But don't be discouraged by that, but do take account of it. 
And the best way to do that is by making sure that your conclusion clearly exposes the central idea that you've been talking about. In other words, simply make sure you summarize and represent the big idea of the message. As a rule, speakers should reach a point where you can have almost like a sentence summary. Now, sometimes that will appear somewhere else in the passage and sometimes more than one time. And if such a statement has been given before, that's no reason not to include it again in the conclusion. And if such a statement has not been given prior to the conclusion, then it should always be done in the conclusion, in my estimation. The only exception to not clearly stating a summary sentence in the message is if you were speaking to a highly uh, what sort of sophisticated audience, say as a minister you were addressing another group of ministers. If you're speaking to a group of people who you can absolutely count on will have understood the main thrust of the message as it's stated. Within that conclusion though, there should be some way, some hint, some strategies by which the listener can apply the message. The main purpose of nearly all messages is at some level, particularly when we're thinking about churches and sermons, should be that there should be some sort of application of that message by the people who've heard it. Application is about creating a way where you can relate the main message to the individual lives of the people who are listening. So sometimes it's helpful, I find it certainly helpful to write out the conclusion on how I can achieve and have that purpose in mind. And it helps also if you be specific to the people that you're talking to. This may on some occasions and many occasions include specific suggestions about what behavioral changes people might need to make. It's really important, I believe, that when you reach the end of a message that you really put the people in a position where they need to make a decision. You see, speeches or sermons should just not dispense data, should not just pour out information. The purpose of the main message and then the conclusion is about trying to obtain a decision from the person who's been listening to what you said. That may not be a physical decision, but it should at least be a emotional decision, a change of heart, a decisive decision to change what they're doing or to live in a new or different way. It is an attempt to move people to action. You see, at heart, preaching is about persuading people and persuading people to do something, to do something new or to do something different. It is a call to action. Preaching is about actually winning a listener over so that they begin to think and feel and act in accordance with the biblical truth that you've been dealing with, with the truth at hand. So we not only need to tell them what they want to know, but most importantly, we need to tell them what to do with that as well. According to the ancient Greeks, persuasion included three things. They called it ethos, logos and pathos. Now ethos would be the ethic, and that lies within the credibility of the speaker and the credibility of what the text that in our situation the text we're speaking out of says. Logic is the appeal to the reasonableness of the person to present evidence and give them a reasonable reason why they should be making the decision we make. But interestingly this third aspect pathos is that which it would include the passion of the speaker. It would include the emotional element, the emotions that may be drawn out of the listener 
as they hear you as a speaker speak. And we shouldn't run away from that. It goes without saying, of course, that the preacher of the word should have good character, be credible and should be believable. But ultimately, God is more interested in developing the messenger, the person who gives the, the message and the people who receives it than anything else. But be aware that the life of the messenger, your life, will absolutely be linked to and could become part of the message as well, for good or ill. So it's very important, like I said last time, that you live the type of life which is a testimony to the messages that you give. Now obviously, when it comes to this idea of Logos, the message should make sense. If it is to persuade, it must be at least intellectually reasonable to the listener. It doesn't need to be intellectual, but it does need to have a reasonable expectation that it will land in the hearer as something that is reasonable and true. But persuasion, that third factor, also will always include emotions. Now, emotions may be extracted, caused to well up at any point in a sermon message. Sometimes people may be drawn to laughter or sometimes be drawn to tears by what you said. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, some speakers do work on people's emotions very heavily all the time, and that can be in danger of crossing a line and becoming manipulation. So do be careful how you use and how you appeal to people's emotions. But at the same time, the simple reality is that we as created human beings, created by God, have been created with emotions in place and preaching in a persuasive way. It's not wrong to say that we should be appealing and expecting to be affecting people's emotions. Sometimes you will and should make people laugh by what you say, and sometimes you will and you should make people cry. And sometimes you can do that quite reasonably within the same message. But you should not design your messages purely with those things in mind. I'm aware that often my sermon material will lend people to sometimes provoke laughter, and that would be deliberately so with maybe a humorous introduction or a humorous anecdote included, but also it can lead to tears. And frequently it can lead me to tears when I'm preaching as well. But you know, I'm kind of okay with that, provided those emotions and the materials that is initiating that reaction fits with the exposition of the passage fits with the words in the passage, the words that God has inspired to be put there. You see, the goal always is to communicate the truth of the text. I only use illicit material and anything that will draw out those sort of emotions if it will accomplish that end of communicating the truth of the text. I try never to put anything in a sermon that has emotion in it that does not fit in with the meaning of the text. Having said that, I do recognise that I'm not always able to produce sermons that have an emotional appeal it's on every subject because sometimes the material doesn't lend itself naturally to it and one shouldn't work too hard to try and crowbar either an uplifting or an emotional story in just because you feel there should be one there. All these ideas and strategies are only useful if they help people relate to either the subject or help people to drive the point, the message of the passage home in such a way as inspires them to action. You see, our primary purpose is not to entertain. 
It is to impact people, but to interact people with truth, which sometimes means doing it forcefully, sometimes as forcibly as possible, and allowing for the fact that there will be an emotional response, but it will be it will be that emotional response will be the way in which effectively they are inspired by which to make a decision. There are many principles that speakers and salesmen have in common, which have been used in the past to bring people to the point of his decision. One of the most basic in sales is to assume that a decision has been made. In sales, this approach is called the assumptive close. And it was one of the standard ways of closing sales in the 60s and the 70s when I grew up. But things are tend to be more sophisticated than that. And the assumptive close is seen as somewhat manipulative. That's whereby a salesperson assumes the customer is going to buy and says to the customer something like, if you can just make the check out for so much, things like that. Now, that clearly has elements of manipulation in the world. But friends, let me tell you, sometimes as a preacher, we have the right to assume that we are have already an audience before us who have accepted what we've said because they are in a position where they've committed to the authority of Scripture and believing that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. So for us in those situations, so I'm talking mainly about in church context, if you're doing sort of a Sunday morning, Sunday evening message, it's totally reasonable when addressing a church or a congregation to make that assumption that what you're saying is true and that they should act in this way because of it accordingly. On the other hand, perhaps the most basic way to attain a decision is not to just make an assumption, it's actually to ask for it. In sales, it's often called just tell people to request the order, see if they want to order it. And likewise, I believe it's appropriate that as speakers, as heralds of the words, we should sometimes conclude with something along the lines today of will you make a decision today too? Whether that be, you know, accept Christ, live in a new way, love your wife, serve, help people in this way, pray for people. It's perfectly reasonable to make a, a statement and ask people to make a decision right there and now. Now, sometime people, if they're not committed believers or they're not committed to accepting what you're saying is absolutely true, it's reasonable at that point in their journey, they may wish to sort of have a, a pause, have a, a rest in order to, uh, to sort of instill more information or make a request. Thus, that would tell me that in those situations, in those occasions, you may need to provide opportunities for people where they can approach again this issue or this subject. And you can do this by providing follow-up opportunities. And for those people, it's particularly helpful if you summarise the benefits of making that decision. Sometimes in order to make a decision to follow Jesus, an individual must not only be convinced that it's factually true and the word of it is true, but that the value they will gain in making that decision will exceed the cost. So focus in those situations, focus on what the individual will gain, what they will achieve if they make that suggestion that you're suggesting them either to make Jesus Lord of their life or just to live their life in a new way and a different way by applying the biblical truth that you're teaching. Another possible thing to, is worth building in in situations where people are maybe not open to or even hostile to the gospel 
is always be prepared to overcome objections, to have an apologetic position in mind. In fact, some have suggest, suggested that in the, the business world, the essence of selling is about reaching a point where you can obtain a decision by overcoming objections. And in order to do them most effectively, speakers must know in advance or have a reasonable knowledge of what objections people that they're speaking to might raise. Because there are one of two possible situations. You may face something where people raise an objection, which is false, in which case you have to take that head on. And the other situation where is the objection that they raise may be true for them in their situation in which your response should be to try and accept that as so, but then show them reasons why you should overcome that, overcome it with the benefits to the point where they outweigh the possible downside for them. Perhaps one of the most effective principles in obtaining a decision is to give the people listening a choice. In other words, ask a question instead of immediately asking for just a decision. But instead of designing the question so that the listener can give a straightforward yes or no response, craft the question in such a way so that the listener would normally respond with making one of two choices. And salespeople will say, will we do this or would we do that? But this is a different thing. This is asking people to consider the two possible future directions of their life following their reaction to what is being said. Now, this method is the method used by Mo Moses, Joshua and Jesus. I'm going to quote them so you, so you can see what I'm getting at. But if we take the Moses one first, just before he died, Moses preached a series of sermons that we actually today in the main call the book of Deuteronomy. They're all in there. And at the end of that, he said this at the end of the book, getting towards it, he said this. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God will bless you in the land you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Therefore, choose life that both of you and your descendants may live that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you might cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. So you can see there he sets out two potential future outcomes by making a choice of one of two decisions. Now at the end of his life, Joshua, also delivers a farewell address and he takes the same perspective. At the end of the farewell address, he closes it by saying this in Joshua 24, verse 15. He says, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the god of the Amorites in which land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
So Joshua is testifying to the fact that he too had to make that choice and he chose that for his house they would serve the Lord. And listen to what Jesus himself said at his conclusion of the Sermon of the Mount. He said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So the choice is offered, one of two decisions can be made, and as we can see, it will not necessarily be the easiest one and the easiest way of life once you've made that decision. Convincing people that they need to do something and getting them to decide to do it are actually two different things. Therefore, those people, those preachers who are most successful at what I would describe as persuasive preaching, they know that they need to add at least to a degree some element of urgency in the decision making of the people sitting before them. And one way of simply doing that is to say something like, you need to decide what you're going to do now. You need to do this today. You need to make a decision today. The other way is to tell a person why such a decision needs to be made now instead of later by showing the potential repercussions of not making the correct decision today. As someone once said three things when it comes to preaching, first study the Bible, then speak with passion, and then to conclude it, preach for a decision. So there we are, some things to try and help you in terms of an oversight and helicopter view of conclusions. I'd just like to finish off this session by listing for you and giving you some uh, explanation of the types of conclusions that people will use to close a Christian message or a sermon. Now, the most popular one is what Bible colleges call the formal conclusion, and most messages use a formal conclusion. A formal conclusion tends to review the whole message after the last point has been made, developed and unpacked and hopefully applied. A thing to bear in mind is you shouldn't use this type of conclusion when the last point you've just made doesn't encompass the whole idea of the message. In this type of conclusion, you should be careful to make sure that no new material or no new ideas are added to the message at that point because it will bring, it will just raise confusion in the mind of the listeners and they may feel if you're concluding at that point but that was the whole purpose of what you were trying to say. Another very common type of way to bring a message to an end is what's called a last point conclusion. Now this type of conclusion should be used when the last major point and only be used in this way when the last major point in itself sums up the whole idea. In this type of conclusion, you are making your last point after the development of the idea through the previous part of the message. And at that last point, the speaker will give, not only represent the last point, but he'll give the implications, the application, and the encouragement of why it is worth doing that. And I suppose within that situation, it's reasonable that the last point can be the presentation of that final last point in a sense it's new material is introduced and then it represents the high point of the teaching as you close off. So that's the two major types but there are also methods by which people will do any of these types of inclusions and they are again broken into about six different major types. There is the summary conclusion 
which is just a rewording, a recapitulation of the major points as appropriate. And that's really useful when the goal of the main message has been to inform or inspire. A reinstatement of the major point may be a helpful technique to focus the message back again into a call to action. If it's done without that, it can be a rather weak way to finish a message. It tends not to be the type of message that at that point asks the listener to make a decision. Then there is the exhortation. Now, many, probably too many preachers, persuaders, public speakers conclude with a direct exhortation. Concluding by encouraging people can be very difficult, particularly if a message you've been given has been a challenging one. Now, it's also probably not appropriate if you're speaking to a particularly knowledgeable or sophisticated audience. In fact, for you to stand in front of people who are just as qualified and knowledgeable as you, uh, for you to sort of try and encourage them to look at things differently, maybe a little bit of a turn off for them. So while direct encouragement is one possible method of concluding a, a message, it should always be done tactfully and tastefully. You need to be aware that if you're trying to finish with a encouraging note rather than a decision, you have to be careful not to overdo it. Sometimes it's really good rather than calling for a direct decision is just to close and summarize your message by making some suggestions. In most instances, it would probably be more effective for speakers to give actually specific suggestions for them to do. For in other words, ways in which they can carry out the idea that you've been talking about. But if you're going that route, you need to be specific and start with maybe some little decisions that can be seen the benefit of which will lead to some big decisions and big changes in their life. Another popular way to summarize and conclude a message is with an illustration. And that's popular and that's effective because, well, everybody likes a story, as we said last time. A message that concludes with an illustration or a story, as long as it applies to the message you've actually been teaching, can be really effective. The illustration or story can apply either to the whole message or you can even use it to sort of highlight the last point you were making. Another way of summarizing and bringing a message to an end is to offer a contrasting truth. Now, this is an interesting one. For some messages, the most appropriate way to conclude what you're saying is to say, look what would happen if you took the opposite view to this. A sermon on hell or what references hell should quite reasonably, and I would recommend strongly, conclude with a word about heaven. A message about overcoming problems in your life should conclude with possible solutions. Another way of drawing things to a close is to step into the mind and the metaphorical seat of the people in the audience listening to you, the congregation. Some people like to call this the visualization close. Not keen on that word as a smacks of the new age for me. But what this is talking about is instead of illustrating the message from your life or as an example of another person, do it from the life of someone else who you would consider to be a typical member of the group of people sitting in front of you. 
Begin it by constructing a situation and put that imaginary individual who must be typical of the people sitting in front of you. This is particularly effective for speaking to a group of people of a similar age, children, students, groups of a mutual interest society. Try and put that imaginary individual who is typical of the types of people who are sitting in front of you. Try putting them into the story. Then you can show how your message would work out in the situation and life of that individual if they were to apply the truth you're trying to teach in their lives. Now, in order for this method to be effective, that sort of scenario that you're creating must be true to life, true to life for them, and as specific as possible to them about their situation. This is very helpful if you, as an older person, are speaking to a group of, say, student age people, where you can try and put yourself in the imaginary scenario of a student age person, or if you're a younger or middle-aged person who is speaking to a group of older or even very elderly people, where you can try and visualize the problems and the difficulties and the struggles they're dealing with in their life at that point. A couple more ideas. A quotation can be a good way to finish a message. You can conclude your message with a quotation, but it should consist of something that someone has said that is, in some point, is reference. It could be a poem, a hymn, a popular song. The quotation, though, if it's a concluding quotation, should always be shortened to the point. Perfectly acceptable to use lengthy quotations within the main thesis to back up your argument to the message you were giving, but if you're using a quotation and a conclusion, it should be shortened to the point. Finally, a message can include a rhetorical question. A message could include a rhetorical question which asks a question that does not expect an audible answer. A question is a series of questions that help the listener participate in the message, really puts them into a position where they will be rattling that question around in their own heads. A rhetorical question can be used by itself or in itself it can be the whole conclusion. But in most cases, it's probably more effective if it's a combination and used alongside one of the other methods of conclusion that we talked about, perhaps as a last statement uttered. A pastor I listened to preaching once colluded his message with the rhetorical question, are you dead or are you deceived or are you dedicated for God? That was a strong, a strong close, wasn't it? So in summary, effective messages should contain conclusions that focus on allowing us to apply what we've learned and usually obtain a decision to do that in one form of the variety of methods that we've discovered. To go back to that analogy of an airplane flight, the flight may be pleasant, it may be perfect in many ways, but if it does not have a safe landing, then you can't consider it a successful flight. So delivering a speech may not be that dramatic, but if the speech does not have an effective conclusion, then the whole message itself and the effect and, and the outworking of it that you would hope there would be may turn out to be totally ineffective. Okay, there we are. Hope that I find that helpful. We'll come back next time and consider messages that really get people's attention. That don't tickle people's ears, but grab them by the ears. I'll see you for the next session very soon. Bye for now.
Okay, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining as we explore together this bonus season of Guide to Preaching. In our next session, we'll explore the art of creating sermons that resonate with the audience. In session nine, ways in which we can prepare messages that connect with the audience, the people who are listening to us, even the congregation. So I do hope you find this helpful. And I do hope I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Can I remind you that if you're here or you're new to this, that this is a complete podcast series to work through the entire Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're about to launch out on season nine, the book of Luke. So why not join us here together and make the study of the whole word of God part of the rhythm of your daily life for the next few years. Quite a few years, I would think. You can do that by just clicking to the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts from, and that way you'll never miss another single episode. Also, you can connect to the ministry on the host page. This podcast is hosted on the Bible Project at buzzsprite.com, and it's there you'll find resources. Things like an episode notes page, as well as when we're in the main seasonal books of the Bible podcast, you'll actually find a full transcript of everything I've said. There are also places you can connect to the various aspects of the ministry, places like the socials, the YouTube channel, even my LinkedIn page, where I tend to put more formal structure discipleship courses like this bonus season that you're listening to, as well as Patreon. That's a place where people can really connect and become part of the community who are help bringing this to fruition. So thank you very, very much for being here today. And I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.